1: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
3: God makes your marriage indissoluble. It is a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together.
4: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going to Germany in 1943 to hear a sermon from Dietrich Bonhoeffer.
2: Troy, how you doing today? Doing very well, Joel. Joel, I, I gotta say, there's nothing, I, nothing feels more nostalgic than to go back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich yeah. Bonhoeffer feels. The the very first episode we ever got recorded of uh, Revive Thoughts was a Dietrich Bonhoeffer sermon. Uh, some of the inspiration for Revive Thoughts itself came from that same sermon that we got recorded. And it was one of the very first episodes we ever put out. It was, it went really well. It got a, you know, in our time as a very young show, it got what we thought was like a ton of downloads. And uh, and we've heard so many positive things from that very first Dietrich Bonhoeffer episode. I've literally, I mean, not even all that long ago, someone said that that sermon helped change her life. Uh, and she that she remembers that sermon so well. Um, and then just the other Bonhoeffer episodes we've had have always been great. And even that original sermon was also turned into a sermon jam uh, by a group as well. So it's just, when I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think of Revaya Thoughts, it just feels like we're going back to that early days of our roots a little bit. There's just, you know, such a bond with uh, this person and yet we've but we, we've never covered one of the most uh, famous aspects of his life, which was his actual time in uh, prison inside of, you know, the Nazi prisons and Nazi concentration camps, which in a lot of ways is what he's most famous for. Yeah,
4: so this is our fourth episode on Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer on Bonhoeffer, we have three previous episodes. If you haven't heard those, all worth a great listen. Go check them out. This one, uh, we have a new one which I'm very excited. He talks about marriage in this sermon. But yeah, kind of focusing on what his last days in prison were like. You know, he gets arrested. He gets executed for, spoiler alert, if you didn't know about Bonhoeffer's. <laughs> and uh, he he is involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler and gets caught and assassinated. Or uh, he gets executed, rather, uh, for that. R- short of the war ending, like literally like weeks before... The war ended, uh, so it's kind of a, a tragic story all around. What was his life like there in prison? As a refresher, as a reminder, Bonhoeffer, born in 1906, and he would end up dying again in 1945, right at the end of the World War II. He famously preached in Berlin, Germany, through the Great Depression, through the rise of Nazism, preaching against Nazism. And although he had multiple opportunities to leave Germany, he kept coming back and back. He didn't want to abandon The church during such a dark hour there in Germany and it would eventually end up getting him in trouble and arrested and executed
2: for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a wildly controversial figure too. People have disagreements over his involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler and some of his theological disagreements as well. At the same time, his impact on the church was profound. He ran like secret Bible colleges and underground seminaries. He helped organize the underground church itself during that time. Uh, very early on, he showed bravery when he gave a speech directly after Hitler, basically saying, Germany, you can't follow Hitler. He's a bad guy. And he also gave up a position at a prestigious university, and he was when the only man to do so. And later on, his brother-in-law would join him. But they were the only two because the university now required them to teach uh, the tenets of Nazism to keep the position. And he was the only one who said that I'm not going to keep this position at this academic institution. And today's sermon we're going to listen to is one that he actually wrote while he was in prison. And so I thought it made sense for this episode to talk about that time of his time in prison. In April of 1943, he was at home and he called his sister and his brother-in-law's house, the same man from before. But instead of hearing the voice of his family members, he heard an unfamiliar man answer the phone, hey, you know, who is this? And he quickly hung up and realized that they had been taken. He knew that he would very obviously be next on the list of people to be taken, He called his sister and told her, you know, hey, they're going to get me next. They already got our sister. You know, this is coming for us. He then went to his father's house, had one last dinner with him. And that evening after, you know, having dinner with his father, he went downstairs to read his Bible and his father came to him and told him they're here. Two men have, you know, come to get you. He took his Bible with him, a copy of Plutarch that he was reading. And minutes later, he was handcuffed and put into a black Mercedes to be driven off.
4: Up until this point, Bonhoeffer uh, had a lot of freedom. He he had multiple chances to leave Germany. You know, he was advised to leave Germany, but he came back every time uh, to minister to the people there. And now he's put into a cold cell with a wooden bed and a tiny blanket. And that's 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 what you get. Not even the guards were allowed to speak to him. He was put into this kind of a, a solitary confinement area for 12 days. And at nights, he could hear the sobs and the cries of his fellow prisoners that were around him. And he had no idea at the time what charges that they had arrested him on. He, he, again, the, his involvement with this plot is controversial. Uh, not everyone agrees with it. According to him, he had no idea why he was arrested at the time. Every day, he got a piece of old bread that was shoved through the crack of the door, and that was all the food for the whole day. He got one piece of old bread. After 12 days, he was finally allowed out of that solitary confinement. And what he does next, I think, is really telling of his character. When he gets put in his normal cell, he starts to write letters praying for his fellow prisoners that he would mail to the, his fellow prisoners. You know, he's, he's been listening to the sobs of these other people in these other cells and he, he has to do it a little bit roundabout way because he can't just give them, you know, mail, have the guards walk it over to them. He actually would mail these letters back home to his parents and have his parents then remail them out to uh, his fellow inmates because you could receive mail, you know, from from the outside that way. And so um, he would write these letters praying for them and encouraging them, which I think is, is really neat. You know, that's your takeaway from solitary confinement is, hey, let, let me try to encourage the the people around me here.
2: That was exactly what I I noticed too. I, I don't know that that would be my instant reaction to 12 days in solitary with you know old bread and nothing but crying and screaming in the distance. He was in prison. He was also trying to comfort his friends and family. And so it's a little bit hard to know exactly what he went through in prison because um, he couldn't really share it directly because he's trying to make the people back home feel good. So he's like, hey, I'm, I'm enjoying time in prison, it's fine. I get to write, I get to read, I get to study. It's, it's not so bad. But of course, in reality, he was having a hard time, and he was known to have been struggled off and on with depression. He was constantly being interrogated by the guards, and he was only allowed 30 minutes of outside time each day. But Bonhoeffer couldn't really say how bad things were to his family, uh, because it's not just him. His brother-in-law, his brother, and his sister are also in prison, and so he's not trying to add more to his parents' plates. I mean, his, his mom and dad are basically like, we lost one son in the Great War, and now it looks like we're going to lose all our sons in the second, you know, all of our family in the second one. Uh, and so he's trying to make them feel better. He can't really tell people just how, how bad it has been. But despite all that, he did write books. He did write poems, prayers, uh, play songs, everything else. I, 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 there's not enough room for it in this episode, but there was a poem he wrote called who am I? It's really, really good that he wrote during his time. I, I recommend go give it a read. If you, if you have time, you like poetry, uh, but much like John Bunyan, um, who we've also done episodes on, uh, he did everything he could to use that time to better the church and himself and to write and get his ideas on paper. After all, if every day will could be your last, then you want to pour out all you have before it's over. On the other side, though, uh, Bonhoeffer did have, I'd, I'd say, more privileges than the
4: average person did, and that's because of his family. His his father was a relatively famous guy. And he, his father's family, one of his father's brothers, was actually a, a general in the Nazi army, and his other brother was uh, a, a also a prominent figure that were influential to the Nazi rise. So, kind of, kind of these political figures that were important people, people that you wanted uh, on your side. Of course, Bonhoeffer, uh, you know, preaching against Nazism, kind of at odds with him. But once the guards found out his connections with these more powerful people, they did let up on him a little bit, it seems like. And it also th- speaks to Bonhoeffer's character that, you know, if if he wanted to, he probably could have pulled some strings to get out of prison Uh, You know, if he were to sympathize with his father, but he didn't. He held to his convictions. He held to his principles uh, and ended up staying there in prison. But like I said, the guards let up on a little bit. You know, there's reports of uh, him getting him getting extra snacks, uh, you know, him being able to eat with the guards. Sometimes whenever uh, important leaders would come by, they would always touch base with him and visit with him. One of his uncles actually would would come and visit with champagne and a fine dinner and they would uh, hang out for several hours His parents would occasionally come and visit with him. So, uh, again, he he had it better than most, but he was definitely there on his own choice, it seems like. In that, you know, obviously he doesn't want to be in prison, but in that he refuses to recant, you know, the, the reasons that he was being put there.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make?
2: Now, eventually, that nicer time in prison does come to an end when he gets transferred to Flossenburg uh, concentration camp. Obviously, all concentration camps are bad, uh, but Flossenburg is one of you know not that there's a concentration camp you want to go to, uh, but Flossenburg is definitely not high on the list of ones. If you had to go to them, you don't want to go to this way. Thirty percent of the people that came to this camp died. It was a camp in a cold wet bad weather atmosphere and the prisoners were never you know given the proper clothing to deal with it they were worked constantly in harsh conditions um even though a smaller number of people were kind of sitting here were actually criminals uh this is war where you had political dissidents or prisoners from the soviet union yet they often the guards would make the criminals put the you know the violent criminals over the other prisoners. So they would find the bad ones and give them charge of everybody. And this in turn made it a very brutal place to live. Uh, Starvation, torture, sexual assault against boys and girls, every evil you could imagine at a, at a concentration camp was committed, not just by the, you know, the Nazi guards, but also by the people that they put in charge of you, your fellow prisoners. And then on top of that, you have diseases rampant there. You're not getting fed well. So typhoid, dysentery, things like that swept through the camp multiple times and killed many people, And they were just never given nearly enough food. Despite all of that going on, on the way there, shackled to a military truck with a bunch of other people, Bonhoeffer was famous for preaching to the fellow prisoners that he had, just telling them, hey, here's the gospel before we get there. And inside the concentration camp, Bonhoeffer, you know, after a day of brutal labor, would sit on his cot, and I think sometimes he'd be, you know, shackled to the cot, but whatever it was, uh, and he would just preach and preach and tell people about God, tell any of his fellow worn out concentration camp, you know, prisoners with him, anything he could, he this, you'd be working this along. Imagine you're a prisoner, you're working this horrible day, uh, building weapons for the people who want to, you know, keep you basically in these chains so that they can win their war. And, and then you come back after doing that all day, hardly had any food, your friends are sick, maybe you're sick. And then you've got this old academic professor going through it with you saying, hey, let's talk about God today. You know, it's just got to have been this kind of trippy experience, but really cool at the same time. Even on his execution day, eventually right there at the end of the war, they were like, let's round up some of these last guys. And obviously Bonhoeffer involved in the plot to kill Hitler. He's high on that list. And so on his execution day, he wrote and preached one final sermon to these, you know, bunk people basically being like, hey, I know I'm going to die today, but my real life is just beginning. He was found in his cell praying. He was then stripped, completely naked, allowed to say one more prayer, and then he was hung. And despite all that, all this happening and going on, he there's a high chance he knew this was awaiting. This sermon we're going to hear is on the subject of marriage, right? And the subject of marriage seems like it would be so the opposite of what a prisoner like Bonhoeffer would be thinking about. And yet he does a wonderful job sending a sermon. He couldn't be there in person, but he sent this sermon to some of the people that he had been discipling before he went to prison. Um, and just listen to his thoughts on marriage from prison.
3: right and proper for a bride and bridegroom to welcome and celebrate their wedding day with a unique sense of triumph when all the difficulties obstacles hindrances doubts and misgivings have been not lightly but honestly faced and overcome and it is certainly better not to take everything for granted then both parties have achieved the most important triumph of their lives with the yes that they have said to each other They have, by their free choice, given a new direction to their lives. They have cheerfully and confidently defied all the uncertainties and hesitations with which, as they know, a lifelong partnership between two peoples is faced. And by their own free and responsible action, they have conquered a new land to live in. Every wedding must be an occasion of joy that human beings can do such great things that they have been given such immense freedom and power to take the helm in their life's journey. The children of the earth are rightly proud of being allowed to take a hand in shaping their own destinies. And something of this pride must contribute to the happiness of a bride and bridegroom. The course that you are taking at the outset is one that you have chosen for yourselves. So you yourselves and you alone bear the responsibility for what no one can take from you. Or to put it bluntly, you, Ibrahat, have all the responsibility for the success of your venture with the happiness that such responsibility involves. And you, Renate, will help your husband and make it easy for him to bear that responsibility and find your happiness in that. Unless you can boldly say today, that is our resolve, our love, our way, you are refusing. You are taking refuge in false piety. Iron and steel may pass away, but our love abides forever. That desire for earthly bliss, which you want to find in one another and in which to quote the medieval song, one is the comfort of the other, both in body and in soul. That desire is justified before God and man. Certainly you two, of all people, have every reason to look back with special thankfulness on your lives up till now. The beautiful things and joys of life have been showered on you. You have succeeded in everything, and you have been surrounded by love and friendship. Your ways have for the most part been smoothed before you took them, and you have always been able to count on the support of your families and friends. Everyone has wished you well, and now it has been given to you to find each other and to reach the goal of your desires. You yourselves know that no one can create and assume such a life from his own strength, but that what is given to one is withheld from another. And that is what we call God's guidance. So today, however much you rejoice that you have reached your goal, you will be just as thankful that God's will and God's way have brought you here. And however confidently you accept responsibility for your action today, you may and will put it today with equal confidence into God's hands. As God today adds his yes to your yes, as he confirms your will with his will, and as he allows you and approves of your triumph and rejoicing and pride, he makes you at the same time instruments of his will and purpose both for yourselves and for others. In his unfathomable condescension, God does add his yes to yours, but by doing so, he creates out of your love something quite new, the holy estate of matrimony. God is guiding your marriage. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a high dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to continue the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory. And through this chain, many come to the kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal, it is a status and an office. Just as it is the crown, and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage, and not merely your love for each other, that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As you first gave the ring to one another and have now received it a second time from the hand of the pastor, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so higher the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love it is not your love that sustains the marriage but from now on the marriage that sustains your love God makes your marriage unbreakable what therefore God has joined together let no man tear apart Matthew nineteen six. God joins you together in marriage it is his act not yours do not confound your love for one another with God God makes your marriage indissoluble and protects it from every danger that may threaten it from within and without. He wills to be the guarantor of its indissolubility. It is a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together. Anyone who knows that may say confidently, what God has joined together can no man tear apart. Free from all anxiety that is always a characteristic of love, you can now say to each other with complete and confidence assurance, we can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other until death. God establishes a rule of life by which you can live together in wedlock. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. With your marriage, you are the founders of a home, That needs a rule of life, and this rule of life is so important that God establishes it himself. Because without it, everything would get out of joint. You may order your home as you like, except in one thing. The wife is to be subject to her husband, and the husband is to love his wife. In this way, God gives to husband and wife the honor that is due to each. The wife's honor is to serve the husband, to be a helpmate for him, as the creation story has it, Genesis 2.18, and the husband's honor is to love his wife with all his heart. He will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, Matthew 19.5, and will love her as his own flesh. A wife who wants to dominate her husband dishonors herself and him, just as a husband who does not love his wife as he should dishonors himself and her, and both dishonor the glory of God that is meant to rest on the estate of matrimony. It is an unhealthy state of affairs when the wife's ambition is to be like the husband, and the husband regards the wife merely as the plaything of his own lust for power and license. And society looks down on the marriage when the wife's service is felt to be degrading or beneath her dignity, and when the husband who is faithful to his wife is looked on as a weakling or even a fool by the wife. The place where God has put the wife is the husband's home. Most people have forgotten nowadays what a home can be though some of us have come to realize how important it is like never before it is a kingdom of its own in the world it is a kingdom of its own in the midst of the world a stronghold amid life's storms and stresses a refuge even a sanctuary it is not founded on the shifting sands of outward or public life but it has its peace in god for it is god who gives it its special meaning and value its own nature and privilege its own destiny, and dignity. It is an ordinance of God in the world. The place in which whatever may happen in the world, peace, quietness, joy, love, purity, discipline, respect, obedience, tradition, and with it all, happiness may dwell. It is the wife's calling and her happiness to build up for her husband this world with the world and to do her life's work there. How happy she is if she realizes how great and rich a task and destiny she has. Not newness, but permanence. Not change, but stability. Not noisiness, but peace. Not words, but deeds. Not commands, but persuasion. Not desire, but possession. And all these things inspired and sustained by her love for her husband. That is the wife's kingdom. In the book of Proverbs, we read in chapter 31, verse 11, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servants. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praises her many women have done excellently but you surpass them all again and again the bible praises as the supreme earthly happiness the fortune of a man who finds a true or as the bible puts it a virtuous or wise woman she's far more precious than jewels proverbs thirty-one ten. a virtuous woman is the crown of her husband proverbs 12 verse 4 But the Bible speaks just as frankly of the mischief that a perverse, foolish woman brings on her husband and her home. Now, when the husband is called the head of the wife, and it goes on to say, as Christ is head of the church in Ephesians 5.23, something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. This reflection we should recognize and honor. The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in any capacities or qualities of his own but in the office given to him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in his dignity, but for him it is a supreme responsibility. As the head, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage, and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its anchor and its comfort. He is the king of the house who exhorts, Helps and comforts, and stands for it before God. It is a good thing, for it is a divine ordinance when the wife honors the husband for his office's sake, and when the husband properly performs the duties of his office. The husband and wife who acknowledge and observe God's ordinance are wise, but those who think to replace it by another of their own devising are foolish. God has laid on marriage a blessing and a burden. The blessing is the promise of children. God allows man to share in his continual work of creation, but it is always God himself who blesses marriage with children. Children are a heritage of the Lord, Psalm 127, verse 3, and they should be acknowledged as such. It is from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that they should lead them. Parents have divine authority in respect of their children luther speaks of the golden chain with which god invests parents and scripture adds to the fifth commandment the special promise of long life on earth since men live on earth god has given them a lasting reminder that this earth stands under the curse of sin and is not itself the ultimate reality over the destiny of woman and of man lies the dark shadow of a word of god's wrath a burden from god which they must carry the woman must bear her children in pain and in providing for his family the man must reap many thorns and thistles and labor in the sweat of his brow this burden should cause both man and wife to call on god and should remind them of their eternal destiny in his kingdom earthly society is only the beginning of the heavenly society the earthly home is an image of the heavenly home the earthly family is a symbol of the fatherhood of god over all men For they are his children. God gives you Christ as the foundation of your marriage. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans 15, verse 7. In a word, live together in the forgiveness of your sins, for without it, no human fellowship, least of all a marriage, can survive. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't fault each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. Your home will be a pastor's home. From it, light and strength will have to go out into many other homes. The pastor undertakes a life of special discipline. The husband must bear alone much that belongs to his ministry. Since the ministry is his and must, for the sake of God, be a silent one. So his love for his wife must be all the greater and he must be all the more concerned to share with her what he may. And as a result, the wife will be able to lighten the husband's burden all the more, standing by his side and to give him help. As fallible human beings, how can they live and work in Christ's community if they do not persevere in constant prayer and forgiveness, if they do not help each other to live as Christians? The right beginning and daily practice are very important indeed. From the first day of your wedding till the last, the rule must be welcome one another for the glory of God. That is God's word for your marriage. Thank him for it. Thank him for leading you this far. Ask him to establish your marriage, to confirm it, sanctify it, and preserve it. So your marriage will be for the praise of his glory. Amen.
2: Listen to this sermon. He even says in the middle of it, you have all these things especially to be grateful for. They're in the middle of a horrible war. You know, they've seen some horrible atrocities. They've all certainly seen people and their lives taken to prison or killed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is writing the sermon himself from prison, and then he tells this new bride to be in this new groom. You have so much to be thankful for. It is really an amazing perspective that that was Bonhoeffer's perspective to these new, uh, to these newlyweds, and that there's even things like marriage happening under these grueling, terrible circumstances, yet families are still being started, and people are still going forward and doing things like that so i think in a lot of ways this sermon is very hopeful it's so at odds what we think of bonhoeffer's life and yet he's saying that no matter what the circumstances we're all going to keep living we're going to keep marrying we're going to keep having kids we're going to keep moving forward because we in the church believe in a greater hope you know than this and we're going to keep going forward down that path and so not only we're going to do that but we're going to be grateful for all the things that we have it's just a cool sermon and he, he's his final days were very cool in the sense of just how faithful he was
4: thank you for listening to today's episode of revived thoughts today's sermon was narrated by michael mole big thanks to michael mole
2: for uh narrating this one and this is his
4: first time doing a bonhoeffer
2: Yeah, it was his first one. He actually said he had read this marriage sermon before, of all things. And he was like, I'm aware of this one. I know it. So it was really cool that this was the one that we got to him. And he was already kind of aware of it. So if you listen to this episode, you enjoyed learning about Bonhoeffer's life, enjoyed listening to this sermon on marriage, hey, send it to somebody. Tell someone about Revive Thoughts. Tell someone about the things you are learning here, the exciting things that are going on in church history. Tell people, hey, do you want to know a podcast where... You can hear about World War II Nazi rises and those who fought back. You can hear about Puritans. You can hear about the church fathers. And you can hear about Ethiopia, too. Come check out Revive Thoughts and let other people know what we're doing here. Uh, We're always getting new listeners, but we always also appreciate people sharing that word of mouth and letting others know what we are trying to do here at Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.